but today we're going to be in Revelation 15 and 16. The title of our message is Earth's Worst Days. There was a packed 747 jumbo jet that was flying across the Atlantic Ocean when the following announcement came across the intercom system. Hello, passengers. This is your captain speaking. On behalf of my crew, I'd like to thank you for choosing Atlantic Airways Flight 602 from New York to London. We're currently flying at an altitude of 35,000 feet. We are midway across the Atlantic. If you look out the windows on the starboard side of the craft, you will notice that both engines are on fire. If you look out the windows to the port side, you will notice that one of the engines has malfunctioned. If you look down towards the ocean, you will see a little yellow raft with two people waving at you. That's me, your captain, and the co-pilot. This is a recorded message. Please repeat after me. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. <laughs> now, all joking aside, there comes a point in your life, or maybe you felt like that this week, where you were just bracing for an inevitable crash. You know, we all come to the end of life, but what determines whether after death that will be an endless hope or a hopeless end is our relationship with Jesus Christ. Now, in many ways, that story that I told is a parallel to these two chapters in the book of Revelation. Because here in chapters 15 and 16, as you read them, you have the overwhelming sense that we are preparing for an inevitable collision. Thus far in our study of this book, we have seen two of the three major groups of God's judgment now befall this world. As we studied in chapter 6, that was the beginning of the tribulation period. The four horsemen ran roughshod across the earth. Jesus Christ held the title deed of the earth in His hand, and He popped those seven seals. And every time He opened a seal, a new judgment was unleashed on the earth. Then by the time we got to Revelation 8 and 9, we were at the midpoint of the tribulation. And there we saw seven angels standing on the balcony of heaven. Those angels had seven trumpets, and with each successive trumpet blow, another judgment was unleashed on the earth. Now we've come to the end part of the tribulation. And really, the worst judgments have yet to hit. Right now in chapter 15 and 16, we're going to see seven angels holding seven bowls, each bowl filled to the brim with God's wrath that He is ready to pour out on the earth. Now, we've noticed something about the tribulation. As it has intensified, these judgments that God unleashes are ratcheted up in both intensity and frequency. The last seven that we read of here today in chapter 16 strike the planet Earth with rapid fire succession. Now, we're going to look at these two chapters together, 15 and 16, and as we do so, we're going to notice that they're almost like split screens. In chapter 15, we're going to see the church in heaven, and then in chapter 16, you're going to notice a contrast that couldn't be more drastic as God's judgment is being poured out on mankind. So if you're taking notes with me today, I want you to notice as we start 
chapter 15. Number one, this first split screen, and that is the worship of God in heaven. Notice chapter 15 as we open. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing. Seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, and also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. And they sang the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. And after this I looked, and the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was opened, and out of the sanctuary came the seven angels with the seven plagues clothed in bright, pure linen with golden sashes around their chests. And one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from His power. And no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. So, as this scene opens in heaven, we see that along with seven angels of wrath, that John sees a special group of people. They are described there as those who have conquered the beast and are standing beside the sea of glass. They are worshiping the Lord at this time. They are actually a group that we met earlier in the book. These believers are the tribulation saints. They have died in faith. They perished on the earth. And now their souls have been transported to heaven. And there they are worshiping God. These believers have suffered persecution and hunger and poverty as the Antichrist has brought his wrath against them because they refuse to deny Christ. They refuse to assimilate into His new world order. Now they have sealed their faith in blood. They have conquered. They have reached home. And you might say that as they stand there singing, what's on their lips is a golden oldie from the Hebrew hymn book, the book of Exodus. Now the backstory of the hymn that they are singing there, which we read in verses 2 through 4, is very interesting. It's called the so-called Song of Moses. And this song was actually sang in Exodus chapter 14 and 15. And it happens as the children of Israel cross the Red Sea. You remember that. God miraculously dammed up the water so that Moses and his followers could walk to the other side and then Pharaoh's army comes in behind them giving chase and yet when all of God's children get to the other side, God releases the waters back down on Pharaoh and his men, and they drown in a flood. And in the aftermath of that supernatural deliverance, the Israelites stand on the shores looking that, over that great deliverance, that great victory that God has given them, and they sing this song, which now these tribulation saints sing in heaven. So there's a parallelism here. Warren Wiersbe, the great Bible commentator, he recently went on to be with the Lord. Look at what he said about this parallelism. He said, The scene of heavenly worship is reminiscent of Israel following the Exodus. The tribulation saints whom John saw were standing by the sea of glass in heaven, just as the Israelites stood 
by the Red Sea. The tribulation saints sang it in anticipation of God's great victory over the Antichrist, just as Israel sang in memory of God's victory over Pharaoh. Just as God led Israel to salvation over the world, this scene would give great assurance to suffering saints of any age that God will lead His church to salvation over the world. And friend, as I study that passage, I'm encouraged. Something stirs in my spirit as I see this yet future group of saints who have suffered through the worst days on earth and come through the other side raising their voices to praise God. If they can praise God, friend, we can praise God today no matter what situation we are facing. The church can live victoriously today. Now, how, you say, is that possible? Because we have two great weapons for conquering in this world. One of them is in your hand right now. The Word of God. We have the Word of God which tells the end from the beginning and everything in between. Right now, we are in the middle of the story. But friend, I'm telling you that an almighty, all-knowing, all-powerful God has already written the end of the story. And for those who know His Son Jesus, it's going to be a good ending to that story. Right now, the end may seem uncertain. Right now, it may seem like the church is uh, on the ropes. But I'm telling you, friend, just hang on because God has written the last line. You see, friend, as you read the Word of God, as we study the book of Revelation, we find out that Christ reigns and the Antichrist wanes. That the church does overcome the world. That good will triumph evil. That God's perfect justice will be meted out on an unrighteous world. That God will wipe away every tear. That death will be defeated. And the curse, praise God, will be reversed. And friend, all this should give you hope today as a child of God that you have the strength to endure whatever Satan, whatever this world might throw at you because friend, you know the author. He's the beginner and the finisher of your faith. He's the Alpha and the Omega and friend, He knows the end and if you're in Him, the end is good. So we have the Word of God which encourages us and tells us Hey, church, you're a winner. Then we have another great weapon that we can use. It's the same thing that we see in this text, and it's the worship of God. Not only the Word of God, but the worship of God. Now, by my count, as I study this passage, this is the sixth anthem of praise in the book of Revelation. And you can't read this book without worshiping, and that's important because no matter how bad things might get, you can choose to worship God in your valley or on your mountaintop. L listen to me today, church. It's a choice to rejoice. You have that choice within you. And when you begin to worship, even if your circumstances are against it, even if your spirit tells you you shouldn't, if you choose to worship, you know what it does? It takes your att attention off of the temporal and puts it on the eternal. It takes your attention off the present and puts it on the future. It takes your attention off the problems and turns your attention to the great problem solver that we serve. You see, worship is about all that I am, responding to all that He is, rejoicing over all that He has done, and hoping in what all that He's going to do in the future. Reminds me of the story that I heard about the man who got saved, and he decided that he wanted to join the church choir. 
There's only one problem, Preston. The guy couldn't carry a tune in a bucket. Others tried to encourage him to try and find somewhere else in the church to serve, but he insisted on being part of the choir, and he was actually kind of being a disruption. The choir director became so desperate that he, he went to the pastor, and he said, Pastor, you've got to do something with this guy. If you, if you don't persuade him to leave the choir, I, I've already heard several other choir members that say that he's a distraction from the singing, and, and they're going to leave too. So the pastor said, all right, I'll go talk to him. So the pastor went and talked to the man. He suggested very gingerly that he might want to leave the choir. And the man said, well, why should I leave, preacher? And the preacher said, well, several people have told me that you just can't sing. He said, that's nothing. I've heard 50 people say that you can't preach, and they're still here today. <laughs> so, so, friends, we have every reason to sing and praise God today, don't we? It may not be the most beautiful noise, but it can be a joyful noise. And here's the good news. We've got all of eternity to get better at it. So we see the worship of God in heaven. But then our text moves drastically in chapter 16, and we read about the wrath of God on the earth. First path of this is very joyful and very much full of hope, but now we get to the blood and guts. Chapter 16 marks the beginning of the end for the world of unbelievers who are alive during these last days. The seven angels that we are going to see here hold bowls that are filled to the top with God's wrath. And with each angel, they pour out a, their contents on the earth and a new judgment is unleashed with devastating effect. Now as we study these, what you're going to notice, if you're a good student of the book of Exodus, there's a parallel here between the judgments that God sent to Egypt in the book of Exodus as Moses is trying to work for the freedom of his people. A lot of those same judgments are going to be revisited on the earth during this time, except they will come with greater scope and intensity. The first of these bowls is what I've called cankerous sores. Cankerous sores, we read in verse 1 and 2. Chapter 16, Then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, Go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. And so the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth, and harmful and painful sores came upon people who bore the mark of the beast and who worshipped the image. So this first judgment is unique. It's different from many of the other judgments we've seen thus far because these sores that will afflict mankind are targeted against a very specific group. They will only infect those who have accepted the mark of the beast. In other words, those who have taken that number 666, who have identified themselves with Satan. Now this judgment is very much like the last plague, or one of the last plagues, that God sent on Egypt in Exodus chapter 9. Now when I read this, I thought about What's happening right now in our world? <laughs> this is a great time of year. This is one of my favorite times of year because all the good stuff from the garden starts to come in. And uh, my tomatoes have started to come in. And I love fresh, vine-ripened tomatoes. There's nothing better than going out and picking a vine-ripened tomato off and just cutting it open and eating it right there. Amen? Somebody say, praise God, if you were raised in the country and you know how to eat. Well, I love to eat those tomatoes and... Uh, in fact, I've been eating them so much that I, tried, I eat one for breakfast, a lunch, and dinner if, if, I, if I can do it. 
But last year I started eating those things as they were coming in. I couldn't eat them fast enough. And you know what I got? I got those painful canker sores on my tongue. That ever happened to you? I got those sores on the inside of my mouth. And as I read this passage, I thought about that. And I thought, you know, those little sores inside my mouth, that's a tiny inconvenience. But this text says that those who have accepted the mark of the beast are going to get painful sores all over their body from the top of their head to their, down to their pinky toes. And I cannot fathom having sores cover up my body. And yet, friend, as we read this, there's no cream, no salve, no drug, no doctor that will be able to relieve the pain of this judgment. I'm not, I don't have a good pain tolerance. If I knew that I was facing that, I'd go ahead and wave my flag of surrender and say, let me see Jesus now. But you know what? David Jeremiah makes an interesting point in his commentary about this malignancy. Listen to what he said. He, he said, quote, A sore is an outward sign of some inward corruption. In this case, the sores are a manifestation of the sin and the hardness of heart inside those who have rejected God's grace. In this judgment, he wrote, God brings to light what is on the inside and their bodies mirror the sickness of their souls. Cankerous sores. The next bowl judgment, judgments 2 and 3, are what I call corrupted seas. Corrupted seas. Look at verse 3. The Bible says, The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea, and it became like the blood of a corpse. And every living thing died that was in the sea. The third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. And I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, Just are you, O Holy One, who is and was, for you brought these judgments. For they have shed the blood of the saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. And I heard the altar saying, Yes, Lord God the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. Corrupted seas. Now, if these judgments sound familiar to you, it's because you've been paying attention. In chapter 8 of Revelation, the second trumpet was blown, and we saw that when that happened, a third of the sea was turned into blood. Well, these judgments here merely finish what God started earlier, except this time, all the remaining oceans, the salt water, and all the remaining fresh water is turned into blood. You know, I was studying this phenomenon, and there's a plague that has actually hit the earth in the past that's kind of a microscopic picture of what this judgment will be. Occasionally you hear something called red tide. There's a picture of it, actually. That's a picture from Florida where red tide hit a few years ago. Uh, John Phillips made this comment in his book on Revelation. Listen to this. He said, One of these red tides hit the coast of Florida not long ago. First, the water turned yellow, and then by midsummer it was thick and viscous with countless billions of dinoflagellates, which are tiny one-celled organisms. Sixty-mile swaths of stinking fish fouled the beaches. Much marine life was wiped out. Even bait used by fishermen died upon the hooks. Eating fish contaminated by the red tide produced severe symptoms caused by a potent nerve poison, a few grams of which distributed the right way could easily kill everyone on the earth. So think about this. These angels dump the second and third bowls and all of mankind's water is corrupted. 
Not just the salt water, but the rivers, the lakes, the creeks, the wells, the aquifers, the little tiny streams in the mountains. Imagine, friend, a world with no water. Imagine going in your distress to the water faucet and turning it on, and instead of getting cool, cold, clean drinking water, you get thick, viscous, nasty blood. By the way, the angel who dispenses this judgment also praises God for His justice. Can you imagine that? Why is that? Because there's poetic justice in this judgment. By the time that this plague is poured out on the earth, the world has become absolutely bloodthirsty. Millions and millions of martyrs have been slain by the Antichrist and his forces. And now God honors their desire for blood by giving them blood to drink. And so God says, and the angels say, the punishment fits the crime. Unbelievable suffering on the earth. Corrupted seas and cankerous sores. And then it gets worse. There's consuming sun. Consuming sun in verse 8. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun. And it was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were scorched by the fierce heat and they cursed the name of God who had power over the plagues. And they did not repent and give Him glory. You know, scientists say that planet Earth is what they call a privileged planet. That is because we are situated in what they call the Goldilocks zone. And what that means is that Earth's distance from our sun is neither too far nor too close. It's just right. Enough that we can have liquid water and it can sustain life. They say that Earth is about 93 million miles away from the sun, which is just perfect because if Earth were closer, then it would dry up all of the water. If Earth was further away, it would turn into a snowball and we would all freeze. Now we see that with this judgment that our perfect climate is going to be disrupted. We don't know how God's going to do it, but He will either turn up the heat of the sun or He will allow more of the UV rays to come in through the atmosphere. But either way, the Bible says that those who are not wearing 2 million SPF are going to have some really bad days ahead. And remember what has just happened before in the previous judgment. A water crisis. There's no water to drink. And now the sun is scorching the earth. You know, sometimes people ask me, they say, Derek, what do you think about all this climate change stuff? What do you think about the greenhouse effect? And I say, well, you know, there's a good reason to think that maybe some of that's political, but do you believe in it? Well, yes, I believe in it because the Bible says it's going to happen in Revelation 16. The world is going to get a whole lot warmer. John MacArthur points out in his commentary one of the possible side effects from this judgment. He says, One serious consequence of the sun's intense heat will be the melting of the polar ice caps. The resulting rise in the ocean's level will inundate coastal regions, flooding areas miles inland with bloody, noxious waters from the dead oceans. Widespread damage and loss of life will accompany that flooding, adding further to the unspeaking misery of the devastated planet. So much for hugging a tree, and so much for Earth Day, right? 
God is going to bring unspeakable judgment on this world. And you say, how could a God of love do that? Because mankind over and over again has clenched his fist, spit in the face of God and said, God, I will not let you be my God. I will not bow my knee to you. I will not come to the cross. Not only cankerous sores and corrupted seas and consuming sun, but look at this in verse 10, cursing sinners. Cursing sinners in verse 10. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and their sores and they did not repent of their deeds. Just as God did long ago in Egypt when He caused that nation to go dark during the Exodus, God is going to again, to turn up the suffering of the sinful world by turning out the lights. You know, the Old Testament prophet Joel talked about this in his book, chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. He said, Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It is near. A day of darkness and gloom. A day of clouds and thick darkness. Jesus said in His Olivet Discourse during the days of the tribulation that the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. People thought that the eclipse that we had last year was a really big event and certainly that was amazing, but friend, I'm telling you that that was just child's play compared to what God is going to do to this earth. And what this passage previews, if you haven't figured it out yet, this is a picture of hell. It's a picture of hell on earth. Think about it. There's physical torment. There's scorching of the sun. There's no way to quench the thirst on their tongue. There's darkness over the land. And when there's darkness, there's isolation. There is wailing and gnashing of teeth. The Bible says that people are going to gnaw their tongues off. And you would think that at this point, people would repent. They'd have enough sense to turn to God. But the Bible says that mankind is going to continue on their waywardness, continue in their hardness, continue in their defiance. And friend, if there was ever a more clear picture of the human heart, I can't find one. Because even though God has given them grace and mercy, even though He's shown them that Jesus Christ is the only way, they still refuse. Cursing sinners. But then look at this in verse 12. The next bowl, the sixth bowl, controlling spirits. Verse 12, it says, And the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings of the east. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet three unclean spirits like frogs. For they are demonic spirits performing signs who go aboard to the kings of the world to assemble them for a day on the great day of God the Almighty. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be exposed. Verse 16 says, They assembled them at a place that is in Hebrew called Armageddon. Now when the sixth bowl is poured out on the earth, it begins to set the stage for this climactic battle that we've heard a lot about, the battle of Armageddon. And two events are touched off in this bowl that begins to assemble the armies of the world for this climactic showdown. First, we see that the Euphrates River is dried up. Now, we read about the Euphrates River. It was one of the original rivers that ran through the Garden of Eden all the way back in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. 
But that Euphrates River actually carves its way from Turkey, beginning in Mount Ararat, and goes all the way down south through Iraq. It dumps into the Persian Gulf. The river is 1,700 miles long. And for centuries, the Euphrates River has been a natural dividing line between east and west. And what God does in this judgment is He dries up the Euphrates paving the way for the armies of the east, that is China and Korea and all of those nations of the Far East, so that they will have a way to get over the natural barrier and meet at a place called Armageddon. It's just like what God did with the Red Sea when He dried up the sea, piled it up on either side, the Israelites went through, and then Pharaoh's army came behind. God was setting a trap at the Red Sea, and God is doing it again here in the end times. He's setting a trap gathering all of the nations together in one place so that Jesus Christ can return and with one final blow fail the Antichrist, false prophet, Satan, and all of his enemies at one time. Now there's a second event that coincides with this and we read about it. It's a demonic invasion. Verse 14, they are demonic spirits performing signs. And what does that mean? God is going to give these demons of leeway to go out and deceive the armies of the world, the leaders of these armies. And they're going to be convinced to meet at Armageddon. Now think about it. God is preparing the way. God is setting a trap. And He's even using enemies. He's even using demons to bring people to the place where He wants them to be so that judgment can happen the way that He wants it to happen. Is God sovereign or not? Listen, friend, my God's never said oops. My God doesn't make mistakes. Look at His sovereign hand as He is even using the enemies, the demonic hordes, to accomplish His victory. <laughs> so we see controlling spirits and cursing sinners. We see cankerous sores and consuming sun and corrupted seas. And then lastly, we see in this seventh bold judgment, notice with me as we close today, cataclysmic shaking. We read about it in verse 17. The Bible says, The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple and from the throne, saying, It is done. And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake such as there has never been since man was on the earth. So great was that earthquake. The great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. And God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of wine of the fury of His wrath, and every island foot away, and no mountains were to be found, and great hailstones, about 100 pounds each, fell from heaven on people. And they cursed God for the plague of the hail, because the plague was so severe. My God, how can we read this and not tremble a little bit in our spirit? God is going to punctuate this final judgment of the tribulation with an earthquake that is going to register off the Richter scale. The Bible says that the world's premier cities will be demolished. Think about it. London, Paris, New York, Los Angeles, all toppled in a day. And then the Bible says that God is going to remember the capital city of the Antichrist Empire, Babylon the Great, and we see that she's going to topple. We'll read about that later on in chapter 17 and 18. But according to verse 20, did you read that? The whole topography of earth is going to be changed in one earthquake. 
God did it in the flood. Certainly He can do it again in the earthquake. The Bible says every island fled away and no mountains were to be found. My goodness. Henry Morris wrote about that. Listen to what he said. He said, the final effect of this global upheaval is to prepare the world for the reign of Christ. The gentle rolling topography of the world as originally created will be restored. No more will there be great inaccessible mountain ranges or deserts or frozen tundras. The physical environment of the millennium will be in large measure a restoration of the pre-flood world. Christ, he said, will reshape the earth to His liking during His reign. And this earthquake is just the beginning. And if that wasn't enough, as you finish this chapter in verse 20, it says that hailstones, 100 pounds each, will pelt humanity. Friend, that's hard to imagine, isn't it? 100 pound hailstones? The largest hailstone ever found, listen to this, plummeted to the earth in 2010. It landed in South Dakota. The stone measured 8 inches in diameter and it weighed just under 2 pounds. And as you read this, you think, isn't that enough, God? Couldn't we have stopped with the sores and the sun and the seas? Why do we need this last one? Here's why. Because in the Old Testament, do you know what the penalty was for blasphemy? In the Old Testament, you go read the law, the penalty for taking the Lord's name in vain, for cursing God and committing blasphemy, was stoning. And three times in this chapter we've read, verse 9, 10, 11, and verse 21, man has spit in the face of God and blasphemed against Him. And for that punishment, God is going to reinstitute stoning again. Now you may be thinking, Pastor, I did not come to church to hear this today. I came to church to hear a feel-good message, to encourage me with the problems that I have in life. Friend, let me... I'm not trying to minimize your life, but as you read this, you don't have problems. Your problems are very minuscule compared to the, the things that God is going to send on the earth one day. And you say, well, how is this going to encourage me? I'll tell you how, because this passage reminds me what I've been saved from. I deserve this judgment. I deserve to be counted among the transgressors. I deserve to have boils on my skin. I deserve to drink blood. I deserve to be pelted with hailstones. But God is so good and God is so gracious that He sent His Son Jesus. And anybody who believes in Him can escape this punishment that is to come on the earth. As you read this, you look at chapter 15 and you see the glory of, of God filling the sanctuary in heaven and people praising and singing. And then you come to chapter 16 and you see it's hell on earth. Let me ask you a very obvious question. Which place do you want to be? The answer should be very easy. But I'll tell you what. The only way to get to the worship scene is to go through the Lamb. It's to go to the cross and go through the blood of Jesus Christ. Trust Him as your Lord and Savior. Repent of your sin. Trust in Him today. Because friend, if this begins as we close today, you'll be left behind. There was an old preacher years ago. His name was Harry Ironside. He told a story about a pioneer family who was moving west. They were going across the plains of Nebraska. It was a wagon train. As they made 
slow progress. It was a hot, dry day. Their horses were laboring. The family off in the distance spotted a plume of smoke in the horizon. And it was an oncoming prairie fire. And they knew that they had to do something. But where do you go on the plains to escape a prairie fire? The, the wind was whipping up that fire. And that dry grass was just fuel. And so the dad gathered around his family and he said, I've got an idea. He ordered his sons. He said, I want you to go here, 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 and here. Make a perimeter. And I said, I, he said, I want you to set fire to that grass. And so they did. And after a while, he said, I want you now, after the fire is extinguished, let's all move to the center of that burnt ground. And the family did. They moved all their wagons. They circled them around on that charred earth. And they could see the prairie fire coming. It was rolling in their direction. And the wind was blowing it. And it was getting worse and worse. And a little girl tapped her daddy. And he said, Daddy, I'm scared. Aren't we going to be burnt up? And the daddy replied, she, he said, No, my child. He said, The flames can't touch us because we're standing where the fire has already been. And friend, I want to tell you, that's a picture of those who are safe in Jesus Christ. If you want to escape the fire that God is going to send on this earth, you need to be standing where the judgment fire of God was already delivered. And that place is the cross of Jesus Christ. On Golgotha's hill, the fire of God's righteous judgment was poured upon His Son. And all those who stand on that holy ground and bow to Him and plead His blood will find the judgment can't touch you there. Because you're covered in the blood. Friend, I don't know where you're standing today. But if you're not standing with Jesus Christ, you need to move. If you're standing on the world, if you're standing on your righteousness, your church attendance, your religious activity, your philanthropy, if you're standing on anything to say, well, I'm a good person, I'll get to heaven my own way. Friend, you'll be sadly disappointed when the church is gone and you face 21 successive judgments of God's wrath. You see, you need to move where the judgment's already been. And praise God, there's a worthy Savior. There was a willing Savior who said, I'll lay down my life. Do you need to move today? You need to come to the cross of Jesus Christ and trust Him. Are you really living for the Lord? Would you be embarrassed if He were to come back today? What would your life look like? Are you certain that you'd go? Or would you be left behind? I can't answer that. But the Holy Spirit is dealing with some of you today.